It is the very nature of sin to alienate, divide, or separate. Sin has separated us racially. Just a few weeks ago, I was in a meeting with a congregation not too far from here. And following the Friday evening service, I went to a restaurant for a sandwich. And a group of white people were sitting at a table nearby, and I overheard them talking about, quote, niggers, unquote. It was obvious to me that they will never really make any contribution to resolving the racial tensions that characterize so much of our country. And neither will black people make any contribution to resolving these tensions if they talk about white people as honkies. Sin has divided us. Sin has alienated us racially. It's done the same thing nationally. During the 1930s, Hitler spoke a great deal to the German people about how they were descendants of the Aryan race and thus superior to everyone else. Now, frankly, I kind of enjoyed that talk because I'm half German. But you know, today in America, we're better than everyone else. Why, we're better than the Europeans and better than the Asians and better than the Africans. And yet we all descended from the Asians, the Africans, or the Europeans. And that's true even if we're Indian. We're divided nationally because of sinful attitudes. We're divided religiously. John 17, 20, 21, our Lord prayed that all of those who believed in Him might be one, even as He and the Father are one. And yet there are about 300 different religious organizations in America tonight, all of which profess to be followers of the Lord. And sometimes people ask, how in the world is it that dedicated, genuine, sincere, smart people could be divided religiously? And I don't claim to have all of the answers, but I have a partial answer. And that answer is to be found in the fact that sin attacks the intellect as well as the body and the soul. And it will affect our rational processes, our ability to reason correctly, just like it affects us spiritually and it affects us physically. Sin has divided families. One of the major sources of murder in America tonight is the family. A husband murders her wife. A husband murders his wife. Get my tongue untangled. The wife murders her husband. The son-in-law kills the father-in-law. The daddy kills the baby. One of the major reasons or one of the major sources of murder is in the family. And look at the divorce rate. Last year we went over a million. We had about half as many divorces in America last year as marriages. Sin divides families. Sin has also divided the attempt to restore undenominational Christianity in America. Generally speaking, there are three broad divisions of the restoration movement in our land. And then when you get down to quote us, unquote, we have at least seven divisions among us. And then sin has divided New Testament congregations. Not long ago, I asked the young people in one of my Bible classes to raise their hands if they had been in a church somewhere, sometime, which was involved in a split. And I think about 20% of the hands went up, and this was a class that numbered almost 70 students. Now, it's one class. And apparently about 20% of these kids had been involved in a church split somewhere, sometime during their short lives. And then you can see division in the church when it becomes necessary to withdraw fellowship from an individual. A person has to be put out of the church, not because we hate him, not because we despise him, but because we love him. We want to bring him to a sense of responsibility. We want him to repent, turn away from his evil so that his soul will be saved in the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We can see that it sends nature to alienate, to separate, to divide. And it also divides us from the Lord, separates us from God. 
In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, the prophet said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your sins have separated between you and your God, and your iniquities have hid his face so that he will not hear. The Hebrews wondered why God was not listening to their prayers. And they thought that the fault was with God. Perhaps he had become hard of hearing. Or maybe his strength had been limited. That is, his arm was shortened. And Isaiah said, No, the fault is not with God, it's with you. Your sins have separated between you and your God, and your iniquities have hid His face so that He will not hear. And you're not able to get through because you've been alienated from God by your sin. At 1 Samuel 10.10, the Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Saul, and he prophesied. At 1 Samuel 16 and 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and he was plagued by an evil spirit. Well, what happened in between these two events? First of all, the Spirit of God came upon him. Secondly, the Spirit left him. Well, in between those two events, he went into defiance and rebellion and disobedience. And because he sinned against God, he separated himself from the Lord. And the same thing is still going on tonight. If we live in rebellion to the will of God, then we alienate ourselves from God. The Scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, every accountable person who has not turned to God is a sinner and thus separated from God. And Francis Schaeffer calls that cosmic alienation, worldwide alienation. And, of course, that's correct. Well, it's called in the Bible death. For example, God Almighty, in speaking to Adam and Eve, told them they could eat of every tree of the garden but one. He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you'll die. Literally, it says, dying shalt thou die. They ate of the forbidden fruit. Physically speaking, they lived hundreds of years after eating of that fruit. But they died that day spiritually because they were alienated from God. Thus they went under the realm and the power of what the Bible calls death. In Romans 8 and 6, Paul said to be carnally minded is death. In Romans 5, 12, he said, By one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. So then death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So those who are in sin, those who are not right with God, are separated from Him. Thus they are under spiritual death. Augustine, referring to his life before conversion, said, Was that life? Was that really life? Now what the world calls pleasure, what it calls trenchant and temporary joy, what it calls life, Almighty God passes judgment upon, and he says, Really? That's death. Death. Why? Because it's a separation from me. It is an existence away from my fellowship and my communion, and therefore it's death. Separation from God, who is the very source of life. And of course, if one lives away from God in this life, if he's under the power and the realm of death here, he doesn't make a change, then he'll die in that condition. You can't live the life of a tear and die of wheat. You can't live the life of a goat and die of sheep. You can't live as a sinner and die a saint. Simply cannot be done. And if we die in sin, then we'll be alienated from God forever. Second Thessalonians one verses seven to nine. Do you who are troubled? Rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now that passage affirms that if one doesn't know God, doesn't obey the gospel, he'll be separated from God forever. If you're unsaved tonight as a backslidden Christian or one who has never come to Christ, you may feel that your life is rather pleasant. And if you feel that way about it, it's true because you're drinking God's water and you're eating God's food. You're breathing God's air. You're living in God's world. You're enjoying God's sunshine. 
Even though you're separated from the fellowship of God, you're not separated from every blessing and benefit of God. But in the next life, you'll be separated not only from the presence of God, but from every blessing of God. And the Bible refers to that as hell. And where God isn't, that's bound to be hell. And in Revelation 21 and 8, John described it as the second death. Separation from God here is death, spiritual death. Separation from God in the next life is death, eternal death. You can sum up being away from God or being in hell as death. I mean, everything about it comes under the sway and the province of death, eternal death. And in contrast, is eternal life. Now, one might be alienated or separated from God tonight because of his wrongdoing, but he's not separated from the love of God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I think here I need to point out that there are two loves of God in the New Testament. In Romans 8.38-39, Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now notice he refers to the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That love is peculiar or unique to those who have been baptized into Jesus and thus have a union with Him. And he pointed out the tribulation, distress, the vicissitudes of life cannot separate us from God's love. Now he didn't say that our own rebellion wouldn't separate us. In Jude verse 21 the writer said, Keep yourselves in the love of God. You and I have to do something to stay in that love which God has reserved for His people or His church. But we don't have to do anything to stay in the love of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Well, why did He love the world? Some girl says, uh, I love Joe because he's handsome. Or Joe says, I love Jane because she's pretty. Well, the conclusion is pretty evident. Neither would be loved if they were ugly. I love you because well, if you didn't have whatever follows that because, then I wouldn't love you anymore. Well, what is it that caused God to love us? Well, we're all pretty. And we're all handsome. And we all have black curly hair. Oh, no, that isn't it. Some folks even without hair. Excuse me, Jim. But, I mean, some kind of short on hair. You know, of course, I look like a fuzzy wuzzy next to Woodruff. But anyhow, anyhow, that isn't it. God doesn't love us because of any beauty on our part. He doesn't love us because of any potentiality in ourselves to render Him service. God loves us even when we're unlovable. According to Romans 5, He loves us even when we're enemies. You simply can't separate yourself from the love of God. Can't be done. Well, someone says, what is the basis for God's love? Well, there's a sense in which you can say it's unmotivated. Now, I said a sense. Now, don't push me up in the corner. I don't want to go any further tonight. But I'm simply saying that God loves us, and that's it, and you can't do anything to cause Him to quit loving you. The gospel is God's power to save, Romans 1.16. And I'm sure you've heard that this word translated as power is dunamis, from which we get dynamic or dynamo or dynamite. The gospel is God's dynamite. It's God's dynamic. It's God's dunamis to lead us to salvation. And I think the gospel is God's power to save because it tells of His love. 
I mean, man, we read about it and our hearts are broken. We say, I just can't fight that. I can't resist it. And I want to yield and I want to surrender and I want to become obedient. And to use the language of Paul, we're constrained, we're controlled, we're compelled by the love of Christ. You can't do anything to cause God Almighty to quit loving you. I think, generally speaking, there are two concepts that cause the unsaved to feel unloved. And I think the first one is the knowledge of what they've done. Did you ever think about some of the things you've done? I've been a Christian 27 years. And I can think of some of the things that I did before I turned to Christ, and I, I, can, just, I can just feel the heat as it rushes to my cheeks. I began to blush. When I think of some of the things that I've done in the past, and some of us dwell upon our wrongdoings to the point that we think, well, my, God couldn't love me. He couldn't care anything for me because look at all of the wretched, evil, ungodly things that I've done. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't mean that God loves you one whit less. Not one whit less. Now, that's hard for us to imagine. But it's true. Instantly, it's true even in human love in some instances. We have three children at our house. I think all three of them are fine. I'm a little biased. But I'll tell you this. I don't believe that any one of our three children could ever act in such a way as to cause Marilyn and me to quit loving them. Now, they might be disinherited. <laughs> that wouldn't be much, but now, they might be disinherited. But I don't think they could do anything to cause us to quit loving them. And in like manner, I know we can't do anything to cause our Creator to quit loving us. Now, there's another concept that worries some people. They wonder how in the world God could love them since they're so small and so insignificant. I think this has made inroads even into the church. They say, well, man, look at the vastness of the universe. It's so immense, and the earth is just a speck, and we're just infinitesimal specks on a speck. And if there is a God, if there is a Creator, how in the world could He be concerned about us? Well, now, that, that line of reasoning is based on a false premise. Namely, that you determine value by size. Would you love your mother any more if she weighed 100 pounds more? Would you love your any dad, daddy any less if he weighed 50 pounds less? How do you determine value? I can imagine someone walking up to me, and probably Brother Jones would put him up to it, and say, Hey, how do you feel when Brother Jones, the head of the Bible department, walks into a room where you are? And my response is, well, I'd feel just about like a dime when a nickel walked in. You know. I mean, a dime may be smaller than a nickel, but it has more sense. And you don't judge value by size. Now, let me tell you something. I don't care how mean you've been. God Almighty loves you. And I don't care how small and insignificant you are. God Almighty knows when a sparrow falls and He knows the number of hairs on your head and you can make sure He knows you and He knows your name. You don't determine value by size. And if you're alienated from God tonight, I hope you'll believe that you can't separate yourself from the love of God because of your wrongdoing and you can't separate yourself from the concern of God by your smallness. It just simply cannot be done. But if you're away from the Lord, how are you going to get back to Him? The answer is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us unto himself, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now there it is. And the first statement that's made is, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I really think God the Father made a greater sacrifice than God the Son did. We have three children. I believe it would be easier for me to suffer than to watch one of my children go through agony, have the ability to stop it, and do nothing except watch it as it continued. God Almighty watched Jesus die. He had the power to stop it. He didn't stop it. He let him agonize and suffer all the way up until death. I really think God the Father made a greater sacrifice than did God the Son. God was in Christ. What does that mean, God was in Christ? Well, surely it includes the virgin birth. Surely it includes that ministry that was characterized by miracles. Surely it includes the temptations. Jesus put His precious purity on the line. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He put himself in a position where he could have succumbed to wrongdoing. He could have become guilty of transgression. And surely the statement that God was in Christ includes the crucifixion. And it embraces the statement that our Lord made in dying. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And surely it must include his resurrection from the dead, in which mighty act he was declared to be God's Son with power. God was in Christ must mean all of that. In Philippians 2, 5 following, the Apostle Paul gives a section on the humiliation or the condescension of Jesus. He says, Although the Lord was on an equality with God, He didn't count it as something to be tenaciously held or grasped. But rather, He emptied Himself, not of His Godhood, but of His equality. And He became a man, and He became the servant of men. And He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death. Not simply death, but the death of the cross. So you go from God to man to the servant of men to death to the ignominious, humiliating death of crucifixion. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. Romans 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled unto God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by His life. So God Almighty was in the Son, reconciling the world. What are the benefits? At least two of them mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5. Number one, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He doesn't impute our trespasses to us. I don't know how that strikes you, but it really looks beautiful to me. Of all of the mean, wicked, evil things that I've done... God does not impute those to me. He doesn't count them against me because He looks at me through the cross. He doesn't impute your trespasses or your transgressions against you because He looks at you through the spectacles of the cross. You are counted as not having any sin. 
instead of counting your sin against you, He imputes or counts righteousness to you. Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes the statement that Jesus Christ, that through Jesus Christ we are made the righteousness of God in Him. So God doesn't impute our trespasses to us. Romans 4 and 8, Blessed is a man to whom the Lord will not impute his sin. He doesn't even count it against us. But instead, He gives us His righteousness through Jesus Christ. We're looked upon as sinless, and we're looked upon as being right before Almighty God. How? Through the work that Jesus did on the cross. All of that is wrought through His sacrifice. So our sin's not imputed to us. And secondly, we're reconciled. We're brought back. This word reconciled, in the original language, is a form of katalaso. It originally meant the change or exchange of money. In persons, it came to mean a change from enmity to friendship. A change from enmity to friendship. You can see it even in the English word. Reconcile. It readily divides itself into two parts. Re, which means again, and concile, which means friendship. So to reconcile is to make friendship again. At 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, Paul said, Let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or else let her be reconciled to her husband. Now, of course, Paul could have used a man as an illustration, but in this particular instance, he used the woman as an illustration of the one who was in the wrong. She left her husband. She departed from her husband. He says she's to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. What is that? Go back to him. Renew the marriage obligation. Take up where they left off. Now, not one time in the New Testament has Almighty God ever said to be reconciled to man. Never. It is true that God's response to our disobedience is described as wrath. But it's a judicial wrath. God is not our enemy. We're described as enemies. The hostility is on our part, not on His part. So then, Jesus died not to reconcile God to man, but He died to reconcile man to God. Now, I have a creed in my library which says that Christ died to reconcile God to man. The Bible says Christ died to reconcile man to God. And those two statements are diametrically opposed to one another. They're not both right. The creed is wrong. If you're not as close to God as you once were, who moved? The Lord hasn't moved. You've done the moving. And if God has to be reconciled to man, He must have moved. He must be the offender. He must be the sinner. It's man who is reconciled to God because man is the one who has sinned. Now, there's another word used in the New Testament for reconcile, dioloso. It's found only once in Matthew 5, 23, 24. Jesus said, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. This word has to do with mutual concession, which follows a mutual hostility. Now notice the brother comes to the altar. He remembers another brother has all against him. There's the mutual hostility between two individuals. Then they make mutual concessions. And they're reconciled to one another. That word is never used to describe our being brought back to God. Why? Because there is no mutual hostility. We're the ones who are hostile, not the Father. 
And there is no mutual concession either. God's not going to concede. He's already made all the concessions He's going to make. You and I are the ones that are going to have to concede. We're the ones that are going to have to surrender. We're the ones that are going to have to give up. I was teaching a class of black men in South Arkansas more than 20 years ago. And following the class one evening, a preacher stood up and said, Brethren, this boy has taught us the truth. And he added, The Bible won't bend. He said it won't bend. And he was right. That was his way of saying, God Almighty isn't going to make a concession to us, but we're going to have to make a concession to Him. Now, God was in Christ. Because God was in Christ, our trespasses are not imputed to us, but rather righteousness is imputed to us. And secondly, we're reconciled. We have fellowship. We have communion. At the first service, before we came out, the five of us, and they were singing, My God and I. And that's one of my favorites. My God and I go in the fields together. We walk and talk as good friends should and do. Now listen, this is where the rubber meets the road. It doesn't make any difference how much we say and what all we do. It doesn't make any difference about how many services, you know, we attend and all of that external paraphernalia. When you finally get down to the simplest form of Christianity, it's one woman and her Lord. One man and his Lord. And regardless of what else we may have, if we don't have that, we don't have anything. Now, if we've got this, the other's going to go along with it. But you can have the other not have this. And if we are a reconciled people, my God and I go in the fields together. We walk and talk as good friends should and do. And we can say that I have put my hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. Or to use the language of David, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Before, I was way off. Now, as a Christian, reconciled, brought back to God, holding hands with the Lord, walking with Him in fellowship and communion. That's reconciliation. God was in Christ. Now there's another one. Paul said, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now I know there's a sense in which every one in this audience who is a child of God is a ministry of reconciliation. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. He's talking about the apostolic ministry. He's referring to the apostles. And then he added in the fourth place, hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. They were guided into all truth. They had the Word of God. All right, it's God working through Jesus, working through the apostles, working through the Word, which leads to the reconciliation of the world. In Romans 10, beginning at 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. All right, now in order to be saved, one has to be taught. Then when he's taught, he believes. When he believes, then he calls on the Lord. When he calls on the Lord, then he can be saved or he can be reconciled by obedience or by calling as the Word teaches. 
Well, that raises the question, what does it mean to call on the Lord? It doesn't mean to simply say, Lord, save me, all argument to the contrary notwithstanding. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it doesn't just mean say, Lord, Lord. Because people who say, Lord, Lord, and who do not obey His will won't enter the kingdom. In Acts 2.21, the apostle Peter quoted this statement, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Acts 2.37, And when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 2.21, Call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. 2.38, repent and be baptized, and you will be saved. Now, things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. You call on the Lord, you're saved. You repent, you're baptized, you're saved. They equal the same thing. Therefore, they must be equal to each other. Really, one calls on the Lord by true repentance and baptism. And when you genuinely turn away from your sins... And you humble yourself before God to be dipped in water. That's your way of calling upon God and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You say, are you sure of it? Reasonably so. At Acts twenty-two sixteen, Saul of Tarsus was told by Ananias to arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And what that verse says is, in arising and in being baptized, that is your way of calling on the Lord. In the act of baptism, one is calling on God for mercy. 1 Peter 3.21 says that baptism is an appeal, a prayer, a craving, a seeking after a good conscience before God. In being baptized, you're saying, God, give me a good conscience. Calling on God. Calling on the name of the Lord. So God was in Christ working through the inspired apostles to give us the Word that tells us to call upon the Lord through repentance and baptism. And once we've done it, we're reconciled. We're in fellowship with the Creator, with our God. That's the way reconciliation is accomplished. Now, one more question. Where are the reconciled? Where are they? At Ephesians 2.11 to 16, Paul describes the world into which Christ came. He shows how the Jew and Gentile were separated from one another by that middle wall of partition, which was the law of commandments contained in ordinances, and how they were alienated from God because of their sin. Jesus came, died upon the cross. He broke down the middle wall. He slew the enmity. Now he reconciles both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross. Where are the reconciled? Reconciled unto God in one body by the cross, Ephesians 2.16. At Ephesians 1.22.23, he said, He, that is God, gave him, that is Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The reconciled are in the body, Ephesians 2.16. But the body is the church, Ephesians 1, 22, 23. Therefore, the reconciled are in the church. There's no escape from that conclusion. The reconciled are in the body. The body is the church. Therefore, the reconciled are in the church. Have you ever had someone to ask you, must one be a member of the church to be saved? Well, let's change it a little. 
Must one be a part of the church to be reconciled? Here's the way I answer. One is not reconciled or saved by being in the church. Someone say, would you say that? Yes, sir. One is not reconciled or saved by being in the church. Well, why would you say that? Because the church is people. That's you and me. And if one is reconciled by being in the church, then he is reconciled or saved by being with us. But he is reconciled or saved by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Once Jesus Christ reconciles him or saves him through his death on the cross, where does he put him? In the church. And if you're not in the church, that's simply proof you never have been reconciled. It's proof you never have been saved by the Lord. One is not reconciled by being in the body, but if he is reconciled, he's in the body. Well, you could no more be reconciled to God and stay out of the spiritual body, which is the church, than you could... Uh, what am I going to finish that with? Then you could eat one of these chairs. I mean, just can't do it. Can't do it. If you've been reconciled to God, you're in the body. If you've been reconciled to God, you're in the church. The church is the reconciled. And tonight, that simply means if you're not a part of the church, you're still in your sins. If you're still in your sins, then you're still alienated from Almighty God. And if you don't make a change, then you'll be alienated from God forever. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Be ye reconciled to God. Someone's moved. It's not the Lord. You've departed from God. And Paul says, listen, be reconciled. Come on back. Get back with Him. You'll be glad you did. I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The path of sin too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. Coming home. Coming home. Never more to roam. Open wide thine arms of love. Lord, I'm coming home. You know what that's based on? The parable of the prodigal. To me, although it's been told over and over and over again, it's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. Young man wanted his part of the inheritance. Give it to me, Dad. Father didn't deny him. Let him have it. He went into a far country, wasted his substance, and riotous living. After he went broke, a great famine arose. No man gave unto him. He joined himself to a citizen of that country who was set out into the field to tend the swine. And while there, he came to himself. And he said, I'll arise and go to my father's house, and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came unto his father. And while he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. I don't think it was an accident that the old-timer was looking down the road. I think probably he'd looked down that road many a time in the hopes of being able to see that boy coming back home. Probably the boy was ragged, disheveled, dirty, foul-smelling. When the daddy looked at him, he had compassion. And he ran to him. And he fell on his neck and kissed him. Bring a ring for his hand and shoes for his feet and a rope for his back and let's kill the fatty calf and, and eat and be merry for this my son was lost and he's found. He was dead and he's alive. And that old dirty, ragged, foul-smelling boy down at one end of the lane is you or me. And that father at the other end of the lane is our loving Heavenly Father. Ready to welcome us. Ready to embrace us. I've wandered far away from home. 
But, Lord, I'm coming. 